Hello and welcome to Your Employment Matters. I'm Beverly Williams and I'm here to help you navigate your career. This is for anyone who's searching for their dream job or promotion, or perhaps you're just looking to hang on to the job you have. Today's work environments are multi-generational, multi-religious, multinational, multiracial, and multi-gender and multi-gender identity. Add market disruptors like Amazon and Lyft, along with the addition of AI, and it's easy to see why finding and keeping a job is such a challenge. Employment success and even employment survival depend on your ability to adapt. That's why my goal for this 30-minute podcast is to first advocate embracing change and differences, and second, to encourage you to proactively assume responsibility for your career. Get your work week off to a good start by listening to Your Employment Matters every Monday. Find out how to own your career and get the best practices for making your employment matter. The COVID pandemic is not over. Not quite, but it looks like we're getting there. And I believe, and hopefully this is true, that we're closer than we were. And we're closer to returning to normal, whatever that was. I I don't even think I remember anymore. But I think we're going to be in a better place than we have been, at least than we have been over the past 12 months. Okay, there are heroes in this war, because this is a war we've been in. I don't know whether you feel that way, but I I certainly do. We've been at war with COVID-19, but we have heroes, and those heroes are many. They're healthcare workers, first responders, and essential workers in all industries and in jobs that I'm sure before COVID-19, we may have even taken them for granted. But we now know that those checkers in those grocery stores are essential workers and we are grateful to them. Kudos to the scientists and the pharmaceutical companies and the industries who work to bring us the vaccines. I know that I haven't included everyone who deserves recognition and our gratitude, but hear me loudly and clearly. I am so grateful to everyone who has made a contribution. There are so many more individuals who've contributed to what I call a Herculean effort to pull us through this pandemic. And we're still being pulled, but we're close. We're close to the end. And my guest today is Dr. Leroy Moyo, one of the frontline doctors who worked tirelessly in our war against COVID-19. He too is a hero. Welcome, Dr. Leroy. Thank you for your work, your contribution, and thank you for taking the time to join me today. Leah, thank you for that generous uh, introduction. I'm very excited to be on the podcast. Well, you know, we're excited to have you here. Now, tell us a little bit about yourself. I didn't ask you for a bio because I wanted you to be able to to tell about your journey and how you got to get involved and immersed in COVID-19. I'm a physician, like you rightfully pointed out at the top of uh, your introduction. I've been working as a hospitalist physician, and what that is is a physician who specializes in 
inpatient medicine. So I only take care of hospitalized patients. And so as you can imagine, in the last year, the kind of patients who've been hospitalized, it's largely been COVID-19 patients, essentially. I've been doing this for the last eight years. Uh, I graduated out of residency from the University of Miami in 2013, and I've been working as a hospitalist uh, since then. Wow. So now where did you do your undergraduate work? Was it in Miami too? Oh, now that's an interesting story. Uh, my journey to the University of Miami for residency, I actually did my residency in Zimbabwe, the University of Zimbabwe. And for your listeners who uh, might be wondering where Zimbabwe is, it is just north of South Africa. So it is the second most southern country in Africa. And that's where I was born. That's where I'm from. Um, I did my medical school uh, at the University of Zimbabwe. It's called the Godfrey Huggins School of Medicine. Fond memories. And the interesting thing is you go straight into medical school right out of high school. So, yes, yeah. Yeah. so straight out of high school, uh, I was in medical school. And uh, that was an exciting time. Were you ready for it? In hindsight, yes and no. Yes and no. I was ready for it from perhaps from an academic standpoint. The rigors, the academic rigor, you know, of medical school, I was ready for it. But I had to grow into the role. I was 18 going on 19 when I was in medical school. Wow. So, as you can imagine, there's a lot of growth that's still needed. And the kind of responsibility that is thrust upon the shoulders of a physician and the way a community views a physician, you kind of have to grow up fast to take up the mantle of responsibility um, as a physician. Well, but I'm sure that in your experience, you see those who are not up to the challenge. This is true. Those who are not up to the challenge, it's usually because of their motivations for going into medicine. There are lots of people who go in into this profession for uh, the wrong reasons. It might be financial. It might be because of, uh, it's, you know, it's a familial pathway. Uh, grandfather was a physician. Maybe mm. grandma was a physician. Mom or dad is a physician. Siblings are physicians. And it just feels like the natural thing to do. It's expected. it's expected. Perhaps the burden of student loans. It's you know the compensation is generous in my profession, and perhaps some for some the pressure of student loans. People feel like they have to go into this kind of profession, you know, to deal with student loans, and some go into it just because they're capable of it. You know, they're capable of meeting the academic rigor. But there's a confluence of factors that make one right for this profession, and. I can only but hope I got the, you know, uh, I got it right in doing this. So now how long do you stay? You, you, you go straight from high school to medical school. How many years is that? It's a five-year program. The most intense five years I've ever had in my life. The best of times, the worst of times. So it's five years. The first two years, basic sciences. So you're basically in a lecture theater from sunup to sundown. You're going into labs for uh, dissection, for experiments and what have you, physiology experiments, anatomy, uh, dissection for the first two years, biochemistry. And then in the third year, you transition to clinical education. This is when you go to the bedside. You're now seeing patients. You're learning from attending physicians. 
at the bedside. So in the third year, you go through pathology, uh, medicine, surgery. Uh, in the fourth year, you're going through OBGYN, pediatrics. Uh, in the fifth year, you're going back to surgery, different disciplines within surgery, uh, urology, orthopedics, and what have you, neurosurgery, and uh, different disciplines within internal medicine in the fifth year. And then you graduate with, uh, it's a double major, it's considered a double major. You graduate with uh, degrees in medicine and surgery. And thereafter, you're an MD. You're 23 years old and you're an MD. Wow. That's deep. I don't know. <laughs> how do you, how do patients respond? I mean, I guess in, the, in, in, in your country, they were used to it because that's the way doctors were trained. They were used to it, but everyone's, view of what a doctor looks like uh, is pretty uniform around the world. It's a wiser-looking older person, and, you know, we were still young, and some of us still had zits on our faces. And, but at the end of the day, working in a hospital, it's about meeting people at a very vulnerable time. They quickly get over however they feel about you, uh, when they know that you're there to render service and make them feel better and assist them. And, you know, they typically get over it. They typically get over it. I still experience the same questioning, you know, you know in this country as well. Yeah. Well, that's true. You know, it, 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 it's a matter of, I think, obviously, bedside manner is important because that can get people to the point where they feel comfortable with you. And they feel that you might be able to help them. And you're willing, they're willing to give you the opportunity to help them. You know, for me, bedside manner is not as important as it was for my mother. She was, a, you know, you had to compliment her as soon as she walked in the door. <laughs> and if, if you did that, she was, you know, she would, she would listen and do whatever you said. For me, it's like you have to make sense to me. I have to understand and accept what you're saying it has to make That's sense. Right. Well, the, I'm very proud. Yeah, well, there is the, the art and the science of medicine, right? The art being how can you connect with a patient? How can you meet someone at a vulnerable time uh, when they're needing help and uh, talk to them in a way that they can understand within the sciences? How can you convey information in a way that for them to make judicious uh, decisions about their own health care. Yeah. No, that's important. So now after you graduated, you stayed in you stayed in your country? I worked. Or did you go? I worked for the government for a couple of years. Uh, they call it an internship. So I worked for the government. Did that reduce your your your, your the cost of your education? <laughs> oh, well, now that is an interesting story. So I took out student loans uh, when I started. You know, there, there was a lot of money at the time. And still it, is. Still, it still is, theoretically. And I'll explain. And my family wondered, you know, how, how are we ever going to pay for this? And unfortunately, uh, one of the reasons that I left Zimbabwe and, you know, I'm now living in, in the United States was because the economy of Zimbabwe tanked. And it tanked so mm. badly that the currency tanked. My, student, lo oh, my wow. student loan was in the local currency. And as inflation went up, wages went up, but the actual dollar figure of the loan was not, never adjusted by the government. So by the time I was done, I could afford to pay off my student loan with 
lunch money, essentially the cost of, you know, a burger oh, and, 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 and a Sprite, essentially. It's criminal, oh, I tell you. I mean, but that's what inflation did. I lucked out. Terrible for the country, but I was incredibly lucky. You were. Oh, my goodness. That's a story. <laughs> Is it? Especially when so many, so many young people are burdened by, you know, by student loans. This is true. Yeah, and, and, you know, I've had friends who have funded their um, their children's education and let them go to whatever college they wanted to go to and could get into. And some of them, I mean, I remember one guy, wasn't a close friend, but we had a mutual friend and that's how I met him, that he and his wife mortgaged their home so that their son could go to this private college. He didn't finish school. You know, I I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, people make choices. People make choices. Student loan burden amongst medical professionals is, is incredible. It's incredible. And I'm just thankful and lucky that I don't have that burden. That's oh, you are. You are. You are blessed and highly favored. Absolutely. So now tell me about your employment journey after you left Zimbabwe and you came to the United States, did you have to have additional training after you got here? I did, I did. Regardless of what country you come from in the United States, you have to go through uh, residency training. So I got into internal medicine residency. That was in the University of Miami. And after that, I knew full well uh, that I wanted to go into hospital medicine. A bunch of my colleagues went into different subspecialty training but my passion was mainly in hospital medicine, and uh, that's what I did. I joined a large company, a hospitalist company, that provides staffing solutions for hospitals across America. And I've been working for them since in different areas. I've worked in the Midwest, I've worked in different parts of, of the country. Now uh, we settled in, the, in Jersey. Is it the patient contact that you like? Is that the, is it the patient connection, the one-on-one? I. Because that's real. Hospital is really close. It is. I mean, you know what I mean? It it's is. like, it, uh, I guess it's not much different than seeing them in your office. But when they're in the hospital, they're more vulnerable mm-hmm. to your earlier. Yes. It's meeting that need at a very vulnerable time. There's an academic uh, satisfaction to it all, you know, exercising a lot of brain power in taking care of someone, figuring out the problem quickly. Because when someone is hospitalized, it's not a it's 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 an acute issue that needs to be taken care of, and you get them out of the hospital. And uh, usually involves harnessing a lot of resources, getting the right people, the right procedures, the diagnostics, at the right therapeutic plan. Uh, so that's pretty challenging. That's exciting, and it's also challenging in that you have to form a relationship with someone instantly, because for the next three or four days. I'll be taking care of them, and I need to know the story of their life, essentially. Uh, When were they born? What do they eat? What did their father and mother have? Are they still living? And I get to know them on an intimate level, and we only meet for just a few days. And it's it's exciting. It's exciting. No, I would think that it would be. It's interesting because, I don't know, I think... I know that years ago, being in the hospital was not managed the way it is now. I mean, you could, my father used to go into the hospital routinely because he needed a break. 
You know, he would, you know, the doctor would check him in the hospital. He'd stay there for a week. Now, if you stay in the hospital longer than two days, you're not doing well at all. That's right. Something is really wrong mm-hmm. with you because they get you in and they get you out as quickly as possible. Yes. And healthcare costs are so, I think they're inflated. Mm-hmm. I think that what's, the, you know, the prices charged for medication when you're an in, in, inpatient, it's just ridiculous. I was just, yeah. But do what you have yeah. to do. You pay what you have yeah, to pay. Yeah, I was just talking to the uh, CEO of the company I work for just yesterday. And he brought up a statistic uh, that boggles the mind. You know, 50% of all healthcare dollars are spent in the hospitalization phase. So there is an uh, incentive to get patients out of the hospital as soon as possible, rather than what we used to do back in the day, where patients would just stay and go home when they feel like. Yeah. It was almost like a vacation. <laughs> you know, so for my father, it was, you know, so, oh, I don't think. And, you know, I'm sure he had medical issues, but it wasn't, I I doubt very seriously whether it wasn't something that could have been addressed at home. But he felt more comfortable and more confident that he would be taken care of in the hospital. (laughs) Yeah. So that's where he went, and that's where his doctor sent him. Times have changed. But, you know, healthcare has changed so much. So much. So now... You talked about the training to become a physician. That's really challenging. I know I couldn't have done it. I mean, were you now that you've you've been in practice for a good while, are you satisfied with your choices? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I began this journey in the year 2000. Uh, That's when I entered medical school. It was challenging. But looking back, this is the best choice I ever made outside, you know, the choices I've made in my private life. I was going to say, I was going to help you. I was going to help you. God, that was a good <laughs> save, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, you did that without any help. And I can testify to that. Thank you. Thank you. So um, I, I, I have no regrets whatsoever in the trajectory of my career. I've been incredibly lucky, lucky to have had, uh, I would say, uh, the ability to get into medical school, tremendous effort to get into medical school. And lucky enough to be practicing in this country as well. Uh, the resources that are available for me to actualize in my job. So no regrets whatsoever. Now, there must have been times, though, that you felt maybe you had made the wrong decision. It might have been a challenge. It might have, something must have, might have occurred to discourage you, mm. to bring you down, but you bounced back up. I mean, how do you do that? I, you know, being a physician, it's literally, and I don't use this word often because I think it's overused. It's awesome. I mean, when you think of the power that you have over individuals, there it's life and death mm-hmm. in many instances. I can't imagine having that kind of responsibility mm-hmm. and just getting, acquiring the training that allows you to reach the point where you do that competently. Mm, mm, mm. There had to be some periods of, is this the right thing? Am I doing it the right way? Or, you know, I'm not getting what I need here. You know, just how do you push through? So I'll tell you a story about, well, I'll divide it into my training, uh, the ups and downs, the, the downs of training. 
and then in my professional career to date. So there were a lot of down days, Bev, during my training. I'll never forget the rude awakening it was. Coming out of high school, you know, I was, I was the man on campus academically. Didn't have a, uh, I didn't have an athletic bone in me, but I could, <laughs> academically, I was, uh, I was, you know, top of the charts and made it into medical school without any, uh, no difficulties whatsoever, but it was extremely challenging for most. I was suddenly in class with uh, 120 of the best minds, uh, well, the best high school students who had now qualified into medical school and was firmly mediocre amongst some of the best students, you know, in the country. And that was the first challenge where I wasn't the best at what I was doing because, you know, um, if you have 120 of the best kids, somebody's got to be number 120, someone has got to be number 60, and someone is number one. I wasn't number one anymore. So that was the first challenge, um, you know, just an ego check. Learn to deal with that. But I was trained in a British system, uh, Zimbabwe being a former British colony. The British system was rigorous to the point of perhaps unfair. It prided itself in weeding out the weakest elements within the group. Out of 120, it wouldn't be surprising if only maybe 105 graduated after five years. So there'll be attrition along the way. And there were many a night where I would question my decision making. Like, am I doing the right thing here? Is this all worthwhile? Uh, it was difficult. The the demands, there never seemed to be enough time in the day just to deal with all the demands of uh, my physiology studies, my anatomy studies, my biochemistry studies. There just wasn't enough time. Did you have study groups? I did. I was in a study group uh, with my roommate. And, uh, you know, we had a little competitive, uh, you know, banter going on. His name is Brighton. And I'm not sure where he is. I hope he, he can hear this podcast. And we, we, you know, we would rib each other a little bit uh, because we used to have continuous assessments every two weeks. And I, and I needed mm-hmm. to beat Brighton in something. He would beat me in another continuous assessment. And uh, But we worked well together, encouraged each other, you know, and tried to figure things out together. So, yeah, that helped. Study groups helped. That helped. No, it definitely helps. Definitely helps because it, you know, it helps to know, you know that you're not in this alone. Right. <laughs> you know it. But when you have someone that you can study with and to your point that encourages you and you encourage, you know, you're, you're, it makes a difference. It, it, it really does. makes it a so that, yeah. And you need a different perspective. You need a different perspective. True. So that was the challenge that I experienced in, uh, in my training. And as a professional, you know, uh, it is the business of healthcare, and things do go wrong sometimes. And things have gone wrong. Uh, you know, you can't save everyone, and there are days when you when you wonder whether you've uh, you're doing the right thing. Did you do right by a patient? Um, if you have a poor outcome, trying just trying to figure things out. And there are days when you ask yourself whether you're in the right profession, you know, based off of the trajectory of some of your peers, some of your friends, and you're like, am I in the right decision? Did I make the right decision? You know, early in the pandemic, when things were really tremendously bad in the month of March of 2020, April 2020, and talking to my buddies who are investment bankers were working in their basements, like, oh, maybe I should have done this instead. <laughs> 
No, it's t- it was yeah. tough. I, I can't even imagine how what it must have been like for you. It was it was tough watching the news reports. It was tough watching and losing people that we cared about and not being able to help them in any way. I mean, just to be told that they were gone. Yeah, it, yeah. it, it was a tough time. It was a horrible time. I don't think I uh, fully communicated uh, even to my wife how bad the time was because we had just had a baby at that time, the height of uh, the first wave. And my poor wife is just trying to keep our household running. And I just didn't need to settle her with the anguish of work, what I was going through at work. But it was a bad time. I've never seen folk just pass away like that. And it was a short, intense time that I will never forget. Uh, That first wave in uh, early April, late March into early April, I'd say end of into the end of April. I don't know how we got through it. Uh, Lots of people didn't make it. And it was tremendously saddening. I remember years ago seeing, I guess, in China, you know, film videos of Chinese population with masks on. And I kept, I remember asking myself, I wonder why they're doing Mm. that. (laughs) What's going on? Smog. You know, it's like, and now, I mean, I have a mask on every doorknob. I have a mask in the car. I have a mask in my purse. And I don't, I try not to leave the first floor without having a mask on it. But if I do get downstairs, I don't want to take the mask off the doorknob. I come back upstairs and get the one that I should have put on up here. You know, it's it's just, it's off-putting to say the least. But, you know, I have nothing to complain about. And when I see the people who, are on food lines, I'm like, this can't be happening. Mm. It just can't be. Ha- they can't be hungry. What I'm so sick of hearing food insecurity. Yeah. What people don't have food. You know, I don't have a lot of money, but I'm writing checks to, you know, feed the hungry or the Salvation Army. I, it just breaks my heart. It's sad. I mean, this. Uh, this pandemic not only has it, has it exposed what it could do to people with pre-existing conditions, the pathophysiology of humans, but it's also exposed the socioeconomic ills. It's brought them to the forefront and ex- uh, really exacerbated problems that you know have been covered by Band Aid. Those have been exacerbated, you know, socioeconomically speaking. It's extremely troubling. When I decided to go to law school, finally, I knew that I couldn't be a criminal attorney. I wanted to be able to sleep at night. And I did not want anyone's freedom to depend upon my ability to be their advocate. You know, I might not, to your point, I might not be up to the challenge. I might miss something. Someone, because I missed something, not that I would not have worked hard and and zealously defended them, I might have missed something. I didn't want that burden. I didn't want that responsibility. I don't know how doctors do it. I don't know how, to your earlier point, you could do something inadvertent. Mm. It could have been not the wrong choice, but the least favorite choice. You Mm -hmm. You know what? 
I see what you mean. And it's like, I'm not that kind of person. Right. I'm a strong woman, but I know my limitations and I need to be able to right. see I that. think uh, one way that I, at least that I do it is know that I've applied myself as diligently to a case as best I can. Have I applied the best known science to a particular case that I'm seeing? Have I done right by uh, our guidelines as uh, as medical society for the treatment of whatever is uh, in front of me? Have I also brought humanity to the treatment? Have I reached out to family at the, fa- at the patient's request? Have I bridged the communication gap? Or oh, if uh, you know, my patient is Spanish-speaking only and I don't speak Spanish, have I used all the resources available to ensure that my patient understands what's going on. If I have satisfied all those things, if I have practiced with the academic rigor that's needed, if I have brought humanity to the case, if I have communicated as clearly as possible and my patient is is, is well-informed, then however the case pans out, I get to sleep well at night knowing that I've applied myself uh, as best in, in as best a fashion as I can. Yeah, I understand. What keeps you going? That keeps you going? So, or is it, or is it your two children and your wife? Well, that, that, that's, that's the greatest motivator of all my kids, my wife. That's the greatest motivator. Uh, I, I could do anything, um, any profession uh, in the pursuit of taking care of my family. But what keeps me going in this specific profession is my enjoyment of it. I really, really enjoy working in a healthcare field, as I may have forgotten to mention at the top of uh, the pod that uh, I did my MBA immediately out of residency while I was practicing. On my days off, I was doing my MBA because my interest is in healthcare management. When, when you were talking about your dad, who would be in the hospital for a few days because he felt like, ah, you know, my, the management part of me is like screaming. Uh, because all I'm thinking is, oh, healthcare dollars, you know, efficient use of healthcare dollars, oh. you know, patient can be better managed by a primary care physician and, you know, but challenge for I you. Am, I'm passionate about healthcare management. Although right now my career trajectory is still, still largely in uh, clinical medicine. I'm a leader in clinical medicine uh, with some influence in um, managing the way things go in the hospital. But my truest passion, I think my the, the arc of my traje- uh, my career trajectory will take me there, will be full-time healthcare management. So that keeps me going. I enjoy this. Well, a hospital or you want to do, you want to be an entrepreneur? I know we've talked about your um, interest in becoming an entrepreneur, but when you say hospital or healthcare management, do you see yourself managing a health facility? To say managing a health facility, I, I believe, is to limit myself in my thinking right now. Perhaps I would say to be off influence. I hate the word influence because influencer has been an abused word. Uh, but uh, to influence the direction of healthcare delivery, I'm passionate about my patients knowing and having all options and knowing exactly what's going on with them. And perhaps the entrepreneurial spirit uh, that I have will eventually catch up with uh, this passion. 
of uh, making sure that patients are as well informed of their options. You know, when their doctors speak with them, they use the kind of language that they can understand. Because I could be speaking with the most educated person in front of me, but if they don't know the technical lingo, it means nothing to them. I've left them uninformed. Yeah, well, you, I mean, I don't know whether that's... um a course that doctors take, but, you know, you've got to be able to translate (laughs) the medical lingo into layman's language. I mean, as attorneys, that's what we have Mm. to do. You know, somebody will say, oh, well, that's lawyer lease, um, legalese. No, it's not. Mm. It's Mm. not. That's what, you know, they watch television. They think what they see on television is the way things are. You must have the same issue. You know, know, quick diagnosis, like, this is what's wrong with you. This is what we're going to do. It doesn't no, it work doesn't, like that. It doesn't. And I think uh, the School of Hard Knocks, um, I've perhaps early in my career, wanting to come in with flair and demonstrate that I could use you know, technical language and wow my patients uh, with maturity, with growth in this industry. I've learned to meet people where I should, you know, where they understand. Uh, and unfortunately, there's no training for that kind of thing. How to talk to patients? It's um, well, what, yeah. what, what shouldn't there be? No, well, they should. <laughs> they should. I mean, for you to say there isn't any, then somebody's missing the boat. Yeah, well, the training is changing. My training in the year 2000 definitely didn't focus on the humanistic uh, side of things, the art of medicine. It focused on the hardcore science of medicine. And I do see things changing, you know, the treatment of the patient as a whole person and not just as a disease-bearing entity that is going to be of academic excitement for these young minds. Mm -hmm. President Obama's health care reform, uh, the Affordable Care Act, one of the things that it compels healthcare providers and hospitals to do is to provide an experience that the patient can rate, and that rating scale is tied up to compensation for the hospital, for the provider. And so there is a new incentive, a dollar incentive for the hospitals to communicate well, because after a patient is discharged, they're going to get a survey in the mail. Did your doctor communicate with you in a way that was respectful, in a way that you could understand? Were they effective communicators? Uh, and now suddenly that's being tied to dollars and figures, and suddenly everyone's attentive all of a sudden. And this has happened. Well, is, is there training provided? Do the tra- is there training provided? I mean, the the survey is mm-hmm. fine, but if depending on what the survey results mm-hmm. are, if it indicates that there's some need to improve, how does the doctor improve? Well, I call it aftermarket training. The training doesn't really happen in medical school or in residency, but it becomes a part of professional development. The more savvy hospitals, savvy uh, hospitalist companies, uh, organizations are beginning to train their healthcare staff on patient experience, enhancing the patient experience. But you're having to undo people's formed views of what uh, the practice of medicine is. Uh, whatever they picked up in mm-hmm. medical school and residency, how they thought that this is how you practice. Because the patient experience wasn't a taught module, 
during their formative years, sometimes it might become a little bit difficult to uh, change their practice uh, when they become professionals. When I talk about people watching television, I too watch television. And a lot of times there are, are medical shows and there, there's always one doctor that has the God <laughs> you know, it's it, it, He can do everything. Mm-hmm. He or she can do everything. They're brilliant. And, you know, and I think about that and said, you know, that must be a heavy load. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you believe that, uh-huh. it has to be a Love right. you. I guess in real life, we don't truly, I don't always see uh, a, an absurd, obtuse Dr. House or something like that. But, you know, there are certain doctors who are known to have a manner about them, um, you know. So, yeah, it happens. But, yeah, I guess, if, yeah, I guess if, it's, if, it's, if they're good, I guess. You know, what, when you think about COVID-19, what did you learn from that, if anything? Mm. What did that experience, did it change you? Did you feel differently about what you were doing? It must have had some effect on you. Absolutely. Besides sadness. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I mean, there were high moments. It seems almost moments uh, during the crisis in which I learned about the power of the human spirit, you know, to go through adversity and prevail. You know, I, I, I was truly encouraged as the, by the way that society, at least the healthcare society came together, took risk, daily risk, you know, to their own lives to take care of mankind. And that was impressive. That was amazing to see. I, I also had my faith in science restored. No, I did not restored, but reaffirmed. Uh, it was never lost. When I think of how long it took us to develop a vaccine, the techniques that we used uh, to develop a vaccine. You know, prior to my training in, at the University of Miami, I did a course in uh, molecular medicine and translational medicine, and. Uh, some of the techniques that have uh, brought a vaccine to the forefront, I recognized and I was excited and I knew that this is good science because I've been part of that kind of training and my belief in science was just reaffirmed. I was excited to see that, how fast we can move, how technology has changed to help us move that fast. So uh, I was also taken aback at the denialism of science, that also took me to the I was going to say, science, wasn't the science was not the problem. Science was doing what science was supposed to do. That was not right. the problem. Right. So that also threw me for a loop how as a, as a society, that is dependent on science at every corner. Suddenly, this was the hill to die on, for lack of a better phrase, that people would just not care for the science. That was shocking. But my overall takeaway during this pandemic has been pride in, you know, in an industry that I love, you know, the healthcare industry, how we've come together to do what needs to be done. And you did. You all did. I mean, it was amazing just to see people. I mean, they were leaving, they, you, were leaving your loved ones 
at home and going into a deadly environment every day. It was just, I was in awe of the commitment. I mean, first do no harm, but you know, you don't have, do you have to, you know, I would see the nurses and the, and even the cafeteria Absolutely. workers. You know, that's what I mean when I opened by saying, you know, there were, excuse me, we didn't know they were essential yes, workers. We mm. didn't know the cashiers were essential workers. We didn't even think mm. about that. But without the cafeteria workers, without the cashiers, without the people that delivered, not even the U.S. mail, you know, UPS, Federal Express, Whatever delivery service there was, that's how a lot of people got what they needed if they could afford to buy stuff. And those people who didn't have the the wherewithal, the financial resources, you know, it's just heartbreaking. I I never thought that this country would be in that position. Mm -hmm. And I'm not so sure we won't find ourselves in that position again because I don't think enough people have learned enough from this catastrophic experience. I really don't. And I continue to be surprised on every single day. I I read the news, I watch the news, and I can only but hope that science prevails. In the end, science does prevail. We might be in for a period of where people are stuck in their ways for political uh, points and what have you, but in the end, science always prevails. For those that end up living, <laughs> I mean, how many people are dead? Uh, we didn't have to lose half a million people. And so it's, science uh, prevails. Those people who have passed on those uh, ha- over half a million yeah. people, I mean, that's right. just sad. You're right. Absolutely so. But what advice do you have? What career advice would you have for? A young person just starting out, if they wanted to be a doctor, if they wanted to be a hospital administrator, because you wouldn't have to be a you wouldn't have to be graduate from medical school to to be a hospital. Well, you know, what's the future of healthcare look like? The future of healthcare is going to be technology driven. It's going to be for the bold, those who can make big decisions, those who can who are agile and change from one situation to another because yeah. there's, an, there's increasing pressure to take care of our healthcare dollars so that we all remain solvent, you know, so that uh, our payers remain solvent. Yeah. There's a lot of pressure to take care of our healthcare dollars. So um, anyone who has a passion for uh, improving a situation through whatever skills they have, mathematical analysis, statistical analysis, administration, anyone in science, if you think you can do it, if you have a game plan, stick to it. Stick to it. Oftentimes, a lot of you know students who come to my office uh, seeking um, advice on their career, I'm surprised how far along they are in the pursuit of a career that they are without a fully formed plan that's the one thing that continues to surprise me. I'm, I don't make the assertion that everybody should have a fully formed plan. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to achieve it. But I think you need to set out a vision of what you want for your life and how you want to achieve it. They have visions. They just don't have a plan. <laughs> uh, perhaps that's a good They've way of putting visions. it. Yeah, no. Perhaps, yeah. 
You're absolutely right, though, Doctor Leroy. They have a. They don't have a plan. They have a vision. They know what, but they haven't put it down on in their tablet mm-hmm. or on piece of pen to paper. They don't have a career plan or a career strategy. Mm-hmm. They just think they're going to be discovered because they're talented. Right. And I don't. That's not. I don't mean to sound like I'm issuing a blanket mm-hmm. indictment. I know from the young people that I interact with that I'm close to, they aren't planning. It's like, this is what I'm doing. Yeah. And this is what I'm doing now. You're right. You're right. And this is how. You're right. I'm Many years ago. But, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Sorry to interrupt you right there. No, go uh, ahead. Many years ago, uh, when I was still living in Zimbabwe, I think it was a year 2002. I was in medical school, a second year of medical school. And. I was kind of trying to figure out where my life was going. Uh, did I want to practice in Zimbabwe? I wasn't too sure. And um, a mentor of mine, uh, he was one of the elders in the parish that I attended. He happened to be a chartered accountant by day, was part of the church leadership by night, uh, well, by weekend. And he said, write it down. Uh, write down where you see yourself in the next one year, where you see yourself in the next five years, and when you see yourself in the next 10 years, I thought it was a crazy suggestion. I thought it was one of those things that people read in self-help books, but I did it anyhow. And he asked me to be hyper-specific. And he told me to include stuff I would not have typically included because it would influence my career decision when I wanted to, when I felt I'll be ready to start a family. I mean, it was pretty detailed. And I thought it was a lot, but I did it anyhow. And I lost that piece of paper, but I do recall a lot of the detail I had in it. Beverly, if I, you wrote if it I down. tell you every single thing I wrote down on that piece of paper has happened. I don't know how, but it all has happened. It worked. My book will be out hopefully soon, Leroy. And that's one of the things I say. You got to have a plan. You've got to have a career strategy and then you got to execute. You've got to be strategic and tactical. You have okay. to be. You can't just be going out flying by the seat of your, plant, your pants. You've got to think about what, and sometimes what you think, what you visualize, you can create. You can effectuate because it gives you it gives you something, almost something tangible, maybe not something you can touch, but something tangible in your yes, mind, a purchase, in your mind. Purchase to, yeah. Visualization. That's another thing I cover. What do you want to do? What do you want to be? You want to buy a car? Is that what you want? You want to go on a vacation? Take a picture of that car, put it in a frame, a beautiful frame, <laughs> and put it next to your bed. Well, that's the last thing you see at night and the first thing you see in the morning. So you know that you're working towards something. That's true. Otherwise, you're just hanging out. That's true. I look forward to reading your book. Uh, we've got your first book. We have it on our shelf. So we uh, lo- I look forward to uh, reading your next book. I am so, you know, I, I've called this COVID-19 pandemic a war. You are a soldier. You are a lieutenant, a general. I don't know anything about military, you know, classifications, but you have been 
you and others like you. I don't know how we can ever repay you for your sacrifice and your risk taking. I mean, you all have taken risks Mm. and stepped out perhaps on faith, perhaps because you believed in science for whatever reason. We're all grateful to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for that very generous description of what we've been doing. And I'm appreciative of my community, my family, my loved ones, you know, my professional uh, support. They made it that much easier you know, to go in and do this. Well, we thank you. And thank you for taking the time. I enjoyed I this. I speaking with you, Beverly. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. And give my, give my love to the ladies. I sure will. I sure will. Okay, good night. Take care. Good night. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Your Employment Matters with Beverly Williams. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a review. I truly appreciate your support and that helps other listeners find the podcast. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion, you can reach me at bawilliams at youremploymentmatters.com. My book, Get the Job Done, is available on amazon.com and barnesandnoble.com. Please join me again next week. Until then, remember to embrace change and differences. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.